0: Hey everybody, you're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, Episode 77. This week our team has autonomy on the brain, as in the research that's designing robots and rovers and other systems to carry out tasks independently. We'll be talking about all this tomorrow on our second episode of NASA in Silicon Valley Live, basically the live video version of this podcast, which is why we wanted to get you in the mood with today's episode. So we're taking a look back at a conversation we had with NASA engineer José Benavides. José works on a project called SPHERES. That's an acronym for the much longer name of a semi-autonomous robot about the size of a volleyball that floats around the International Space Station running experiments and helping out the astronauts. It's a little like something you might have seen Jedis training on in Star Wars. And it's an impressive example of how technology can drive exploration. So listen to Jose, and then join us live online on Friday, January 26th at 2pm Pacific on NASA's Twitch TV channel, that's twitch.tv slash NASA. And if you're listening to this after the 26th, you can just catch the recording later on YouTube or the audio version on this podcast channel. So just before we get into this episode, don't forget to check out some of the other NASA podcasts like Houston We Have a Podcast and Gravity Assist. And as always, you can send us your questions and comments on social media. We're at NASA Ames, and we use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. And also, we have a phone number, so you can call with any questions or comments and just leave us a message. The number is 650-604-1400. And now, let's listen to Jose Benavides.
1: We always like to start it off. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you join NASA? How did you mm-hmm. get to Silicon Valley?
2: Uh, right out of school, actually. Nice. Uh, I graduated. Well, actually, I didn't, hadn't even graduated yet. And a uh, professor I work with uh, at Arizona State okay. uh, got me a interview with a uh, person here at NASA Ames. And I got the job. I was really excited. Uh, like many people, I, I idolize uh, NASA. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Really excited. Uh, I did grow up uh, there outside of Phoenix. I went to school at Arizona State there in Tempe. And uh, I was more than happy to move out here uh, to NASA Ames uh, for a job.
1: So it didn't start off as like an internship or anything? You just saw a job posting? um... Uh, Well,
2: so I actually didn't see the job posting. I was referred by my (laughs) professor, my uh, uh, advisor actually there at Arizona State. Knew knew a friend here at uh, NASA Ames looking for someone with my background and uh, got me the uh, interview. I flew out here for the interview and... and, uh, So it
1: just worked out perfectly.
2: Yeah, it worked out really well. Um, It was a contractor position uh, in a controls group here at NASA Ames uh, working on uh, hypersonic aircraft. And, oh wow! And to my mind, you know how how cool is that, right? Yeah. So uh, I jumped on it, and uh, together with my wife, came came out here and, and started the job.
1: So what was it like those those early days? You came out. You're working on a hypersonic aircraft.
2: Yeah, so that was really cool. So that yeah. that actually stemmed out of work my advisor was working on, and I got to support him a little bit on that. And it was focused on the design of scramjet-powered hypersonic aircraft. So more okay. specifically, yeah. the controls centered design. So how do you design an aircraft to mm-hmm. be more easily controlled? Okay. And as it turns out, that was a very important aspect for these hypersonic aircraft because their performance margins are razor thin and oh, wow. uh, very high performance. Uh, their controllability was was very different than a standard aircraft, right? Uh-huh. A standard aircraft, you can have a pilot, they, they control them this way and that, but when you're going... Mach Basically, 10.
1: I was going to say, like you're going faster than the speeding yeah. bullet. Yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> you're going <laughs> Mach
2: <mock> 10, and <laughs> uh, and then uh, compounding that is uh, the fact that you're using scramjet uh, engines, which uh, pull the oxygen out of the air, um, oh, wow. uh, and the combustion uh, doesn't involve any moving parts. It, 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 once you're going uh, those uh, speeds, you can uh, compress your air okay. into a combustible uh, form, and the angle at which the aircraft going has huge impacts on on how that engine performs so you have to control the uh, aircraft in a very special way mm-hmm. and so we were looking at uh, how can the whole aircraft be designed in such a way that it's uh, more easily controlled uh, right uh, a lot of the standard processes for aircraft designs involve uh, aircraft designers designing an aircraft to meet certain static uh, performance measures so uh, it, it can hold a certain amount of weight it can yeah. fly straight uh, and static uh, really well, but uh then they throw it over t- to the fence to uh controls engineers who then look mm-hmm. at it in a more dynamic way, and when you control it this way and that is it gonna is it not gonna you know mm-hmm. Pitch too much and explode. Well, oh, <laughs> so, wow. so uh, we were looking at well, how how do you design these things to be more easily controlled?
1: And so, one of the fun things about being at NASA at a research mm-hmm. center is mm-hmm. you know there's such a really diverse portfolio mm-hmm. where you know you have aeronautics and wind mm-hmm. tunnels and hypersonic you know like mm-hmm. aircrafts, but on the other side like also robotics and astrobiology mm-hmm. and exoplanets. So mm-hmm. um, how did that move from you working on these aircrafts into right now being on the, in the robotics division? Like, yeah, h- so, how did that, uh, how right did that process now, happen?
2: I am working on a project called Spheres um, and uh, what's going to become Astrobee facility. Okay. Um,
1: so for folks listening who have no clue what mm. SPHERES is. So, yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, I, I did recommend anybody to go out and take a look. It's, it's um, made the headlines a few times. NASA.gov spheres SPHERES. And it's
1: spelled correctly, though it's still an acronym. Right. <laughs> yes. Right.
2: Um, so just, just like the shape, uh, it's spelled in the same way. It is an acronym. It's basically a volleyball-sized small satellite that operates inside the the, uh, International Space Station. So the common reference uh, I'll use uh, in referring people is it's exactly like the uh, droid on Star Wars. This it's is a, the little floating ball. It's a floating ball on the Millennium Falcon where Luke Skywalker He's is- Training uh, with his lightsaber. Training with his lightsaber, absolutely. It's true, so it's a little and, ball that's floating around. And as the story goes, there was an MIT professor who uh, showed that clip of Star Wars to his uh, senior design class and said, hey guys, I want you to build this. And uh, <laughs> sure enough, nice. together with some DARPA funding, that's exactly what they did. Uh, they built uh, three of these things, uh, sent them up to the space station, uh, mm-hmm. first operated in 2006. Okay. Uh, they've been in continuous operation uh, ever since. So uh, well over 10 years now that SPHERES has been in operation on ISS. Uh, initially uh, designed by MIT to look at things like automated docking, formation flight, uh, controls algorithms. Uh, it's since then been used for all kinds of research because yeah. it's, in 2010 it was transitioned to NASA Ames to be managed as a facility on the space station where okay. we cater to uh, researchers all around the country that use uh, spheres as a test bed on ISS to study all kinds of different things from uh, the sloshing of upper stage rocket fuel to uh, electromagnetic uh-huh. formation flight, different kinds of propulsion, uh, in space assembly. Uh, robotic interactions with crew on, on ISS. So all kinds of really cool research, uh, even outreach. There, there's this really cool yeah. program MIT leads called Zero Robotics, okay. where um, it's very similar to FIRST Robotics, if, you, if you've heard of that, where uh, high schools, those, those, yeah, yeah, high schools. competitions. Exactly, they, they form uh, robot clubs and they compete with other high schools all around the country in the robots they build. Except with Zero Robotics, uh, it's more programming-focused. And then, of course, the uh, finals takes place on the space station. Uh, really? na- uh, uh, narrated uh, by the crew themselves in real time. The students uh, travel to MIT and witness their code operating on the International Space Station.
1: So it's like you so, have these balls floating around in, in, yeah. in the space station and students folks could be like all right well we're going to take over we're going to we have a science experiment or we're going to take over these balls and absolutely do, well, yeah. well, uh, so just like
2: first robotics uh, the game changes every year so there's actually a, a oh, virtual okay. game overlaid onto uh, the sphere's hardware where the students for example one year were programming the spheres to repel asteroids from crashing into earth or oh, this wow. latest year they they were uh, deploying gps satellites on mars Uh, So this whole virtual game that they're programming to. And then they earn points and compete with the other teams across the country and across the world. There there are teams in, in Europe, in Australia. So it's a, a truly international competition.
1: And so just slightly going back to my question before, mm-hmm. I am just fascinated by spheres. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, how did you end up going from working on the planes to working on spheres? Uh, yeah, how, how does that um, go? Well,
2: so my background is in controls uh, engineering. My de- my bachelor's and master's degree is in uh, electrical engineering, but emphasizing controls. And that gives me the flexibility to work on all kinds of different projects that may utilize my controls training as well as my background in embedded systems so i actually did uh, intern for many years at a company they specialize in embedded systems so those are the uh, small computers that go into appliances Mm -hmm. uh, uh, small computers that go into any anything intelligent right and uh, i got to learn about how to program those things uh, how to design circuits how to design those types of applications so uh, i had a background in both uh, controls engineering electrical engineering um, as well as uh, hardware design and software development. So with that kind of background, I was able to come to NASA, initially working on hypersonic aircraft, where Did we were looking at that? the mathematical models that dictate you know, how a, a hypersonic aircraft flies, um, and then uh, the ensuing uh, controls algorithms needed to keep that stable. From there, I went to a project called uh, TFMS, Tactical Flight Management System, okay. where we were looking at the autopilot in uh, general transport, uh, aircraft, uh, the kind we would fly any any day of the week, uh, the 747, 737 Boeing aircraft where there is this flight management computer in the cockpit that a, a pilot programs his flight plan into and then can turn on the autopilot to, to fly uh, a particular flight plan. And we were looking at ways of making that more intelligent,
0: mm-hmm. more safe,
2: basically, uh, so that the pilot can be better aware of what the autopilot is doing. So okay. uh, there are scenarios where the pilot might not be uh, aware of exactly which mode or which uh, what objectives the autopilot is doing. So is there a way to uh, put more intelligence into the flight management computer and the autopilots to better communicate that information to the crew of an aircraft? And so I, I worked on that for, for a little while. Um, but uh, in 2010, I came on as a, an engineer with the uh, SPHERES uh, facility project mm-hmm. uh, here at Ames when I was transitioned here from from MIT. Yeah, I've been with that project ever since, really. Uh, And to to this day, I'm now the project manager for that Spheres facility um, and uh, support you know, researchers all over the country utilize uh, the spheres platform.
1: Well, and I know for um, whenever we bring people over, like tours or the press come over, it's like showing off spheres always yeah. seems to be the. It's always the go-to yeah. place because like yeah. you can actually see it in your lab and mm-hmm. see like you know the you see the balls like and then see video of how they mm-hmm. operate up on the space station.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. great to do those tours. It's it certainly draws the eyes as, as you see these these things that can move across our granite table where we test these out, as well as our. Uh, MGTF, our microgravity test facility, where they can be operated on a gantry and uh, where they can really be tested, uh, at least kind of like they might fly in space. I was going to say,
1: that seems to be the biggest difference of, you know, if you're even for students or people who are putting code into the spheres, into the robotics. How do you even test that in a lab when you have gravity? And obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. the the thing that makes it float Mm -hmm. (laughs) up on the space station Mm -hmm. is that there is, you know, zero gravity. No gravity. So So
2: that that is a very... How do you do that? Well, so
1: first off, it is
2: very much a unique environment. And that's why we have the space station, is we have a a very risk-tolerant environment on the space station. It's basically a lab up in space where we Mm -hmm. can prototype things, test things. Um, and that's the, the big benefit of Spheres on Station is we can test out algorithms and software that uh, may have a bug. Some things might go wrong uh, where we just ask the crew to go over and push a reset button. No, no big deal. But, you know, if something like that happens on a dedicated uh, satellite or a far more expensive item, then uh, you're having a really bad day. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so the, the big benefit of having ISS is being able to do prototypes and, and testing of technologies in a very risk-tolerant environment. So that's a big part of what spheres can do on, on ISS, is take advantage of that microgravity environment. Uh, but we still want to do our testing on the ground as much as we can yeah. before we send it up to ISS, and that's where our labs come in. And the granite table, the, our granite lab, um, is where we can do that in part, where uh, basically we have a reverse air hockey table. If if you've ever been to an arcade, you you played air hockey. There's uh, air blowing up. Exactly, there's air blowing up, and it allows the puck to move across the surface with almost no friction, Friction, right? It's really smooth, and that's what we need to be able to approximate uh, microgravity in at least three degrees of freedom, right? So uh, left, right, up, down, uh, and then in rotation. Okay. And uh, it can move across the table as if it's in space because there's no friction, right? Up in space, in microgravity, you set something going, it's going to keep going forever yeah. until something slows it down, <laughs> right? Um, so uh, on the table, that's what we have is a very flat, very smooth granite table. And then it's the air carriage on, on the table that has these pucks uh, fed by uh, compressed CO2 that okay. forms that cushion of air between the air carriage and the table. And uh, it can slide across uh, with almost no friction, and then it's the uh, built-in propulsion of the spheres unit that uh, moves, moves it moves it around. Yeah, just like it would up in space. Well,
1: th- even on that, you figure that you have the gravity pulling down, and then mm-hmm. you have the air hockey table for lack right. of right. Well, again, it's that up. that
2: gravity, that pesky gravity vector, <laughs> yes. that uh, gets in the way, and that's why the grad table has to be. Uh, to within half a paper's width difference from one end of the table to the other. And we're talking a good three meters across. Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, because the slightest uh, incline in that table, the air carrier is just gonna just start, gonna fall. yeah, the mm-hmm. air carrier is gonna start moving. And uh, if we wanna approximate space, if something's set still, it's gonna remain still forever. And yeah. that's what we need it to do on, on the table. So a very flat, very smooth surface. Uh, with uh, no incline,
1: uh, or okay. at least as
2: small as we can get.
1: And so like basically no friction, but you want to put it so if it's going to move, it's going to move on its own accord. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Exactly. But even
1: still, you figure that's still like almost like a 2D kind of plane, because right. it's not so, going vertical. Right. Yeah. There's
2: no vertical motion. It's all 2D, uh, and then together with its rotation, we can consider it at 3 DOF, 3 degrees of freedom motion. Yeah. Um, and, and then so that's where we then go over to our MGTF, where okay, just like the granite table, <laughs> Gives us the the world's best uh, air hockey table, and the MDTF we have the world's best uh, uh, crane game. Okay. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I I I'm just joking about that, but it's basically a big gantry, a big. Uh, Okay. Uh, contraption that can move something in a full six degrees of freedom across a module. Uh, what we have there is the mock-up of the gem module on, on ISS. And this big gantry that uh, can move uh, free flyer like spheres across the module as w- together with the gantry built in. Uh, that can okay. rotate it in any, in any given Describe way. Describe
1: the gantry. Describe, how, so, uh, what are you looking
2: at? Well, so when it comes to the gantry, think of, again, an arcade where you have this big hook that with comes the, down. the claw that comes yeah, down exactly to grab Yeah, claw thing. comes down, <laughs> picks something up, and can move it, it can any move it. which way, right? Yeah. And then replace that claw with a gimbal uh, where okay. you have something that can rotate any which way. Okay. And then inside that gimbal is uh, spheres. Uh, so.
1: And so But then it still spheres is the thing that controls where it goes? Well, so with or? this
2: gantry, the way we have it these days is uh, it's actively controlled. We actually have motors in the gimbal that will move it the way we want it to move, okay. uh, together with the gantry, actually. It's actively controlled. Uh, there were initial ideas where this gantry, in fact, could be completely passive, and it's the free flower doing the moving. Um, and then we had very specialized sensors in there and, uh, that would sense where it's going and then actively move it as if it's in microgravity. So this okay. whole gantry was trying to cancel out uh, the gravity vector uh, so that if the propulsion were moving a certain way, then the gantry would follow it along um, as if it were in microgravity. And this whole setup was actually first built and developed here at Ames for uh, a project called PSA. It was a okay. previous incarnation of a free flyer project developed here at NASA Ames. They first developed this whole uh, lab setup to be able to do these kinds of simulations.
1: And, and um, so you and, talked about like the robotics competition that people mm-hmm. participate in, and um, some of the experiments. Go into a little detail. What, what is a typical kind of experiment that you would do on spheres that's Oh, that so comes to mind it's, it's hard
2: to say there's anything typical, considering all the different kinds of research w- we've done yeah. using spheres, um, but uh, one typical one might be one MIT is doing these days where they're looking at in-space automated docking of two satellites. Okay. Uh, or multiple satellites, uh, where they've outfitted spheres with additional hardware that includes uh, a rigid docking mechanism, together with some cameras that aid the navigation of two of these units. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so they put together and plan out what's called a test session, the spheres test session that will conduct on the space station, where the crew will pull out the spheres, pull out any additional hardware needed, okay. uh, do the assembly, uh, program the spheres with software that was uh, developed beforehand, push a few buttons, let them do what they let need do to do. So there's a series, there's a test plan that calls out a series of test runs that we'll do over the course of about two to five hours, depending on the test session. And uh, that'll take up a good chunk of the crew's day uh, on ISS, where they'll be working with spheres, doing these different test runs that we've out, uh, outlined, and uh, trying to achieve the objectives that the researcher, in this case MIT, uh, with looking at, um, Automated docking. So they've got these rigid docks attached to spheres, and they'll try to get the two spheres to dock with the each other. Match
1: other. Yeah. And that's simulating what, ideally, in the future, two satellites exactly. that are floating yeah. out. In two zero satellites
2: gravity. or two uh, spacecraft, right? Wow. Uh, one of the big objectives going to Mars is going to be sending things to Mars ahead of time, right? And then sending people later on. Well, as people get there, they're gonna need to be docking uh, with other things. Um, Different automated spacecraft with things may already need to be docking at Mars without our intervention. So that's when you need to build in the intelligence to be able to dock with each other all by themselves when they're, what, 10 minutes communication away, uh, Mars? Uh, They're not as close as, say, ISS is here in, in orbit, so.
1: And I I know the International Space Station, they always love to say, like working off the Earth for the Earth. But there's like they're doing things that you literally could not do here on Earth, maybe in some simulations or something. But like that kind of docking, Mm -hmm. you're not gonna want to test that on multi-million dollar satellites to figure, oh, let's just Mm -hmm. see if this works. It's Mm -hmm. like it's very beneficial to have These prototypes floating in space where you can kind of play around with that software and figure out how to do that. That's
2: exactly right. Uh, Like I was saying, ISS is a risk-tolerant environment to be testing out these technologies that are eventually going to go to Mars uh, or to other deep space uh, destinations. Um, And just another example of something you can only do on ISS is uh, an investigation called SLOSH, uh, where uh, these researchers out of KSC put up uh, tanks of fluid, colored fluid, uh that would be sloshed around by two spheres units Uh, monitored by some HD cameras. And what they're looking at is the movement of fluid in microgravity and trying to validate models that they already have that predict how these fluids can uh, impart forces on, say, an upper-stage rocket, right? An upper-stage rocket going up to space is gonna have these huge tanks of fuel, and as they transition from, say, one stage to another stage, there's these huge jolting forces, right? Yeah. And then you got these sloshing fuel in their tanks that may impart forces that take the rocket completely off course, right? Yeah. So they need to understand those forces, and they have software that predicts that, but uh, very rarely, it. if ever before, have they been able to test these in real life, right? Because we don't have microgravity here on yeah. Earth. That's just not something you can test here on the ground. And so, it's not like even
1: even in the airplanes that will go mm-hmm. up high and then fall, you know? Like you, you can't, you, get, you have you, so You, have you get like 20 seconds, yeah. yeah. That,
2: that's really not enough to, uh, they did do that uh, with some I'm testing, sure. but, Uh, You just can't get the the kind of uh, testing and fidelity uh, you can uh, as on ISS. So you've got what's basically uh, a big fish tank of of, uh, fluid uh, being sloshed around by uh, two spheres units uh, and by crew, actually. Uh, More recently, uh, if you look at our website, you can see clips of uh, a crew member taking uh, two slosh tanks because they had actually sent up two when it 40% fill and the other 20% fill, duct taped them together, and then slashed around these uh, tanks in very specific maneuvers uh, in front of an HD camera to look at how this uh, fluid moves around. And it's some really cool clips you can see of uh, how air bubbles might move around in there and how the fluid might move around in response to, say, a jolt on the side of the tank. Really cool just uh, gushers of fluid you see uh, spraying out in response to, say, a tap on the edge of the tank. Uh, And then these orbiting bubbles you see going on inside these tanks, some really cool footage they got. And I'd recommend anyone to go go take a look at that.
1: You briefly mentioned Astro-B as like mm-hmm. what's gonna be following spheres. Yeah, so, so Astro-B is uh,
2: uh, a ground up redesign of a next generation free flyer that's to replace spheres uh, here in 2018. Okay, um, And it's more cubed in in shape uh, versus the orbital spherical, not quite a sphere, it's actually more of an octahedron octa- <laughs> actually.
1: But with like an octagon, but like in yep. a sphere shape. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah
2: I, I think someone once told me it was technically an octodectahedron. Uh, All shape. right. That just rolls <laughs> off the tongue. <laughs> I had to practice that one a bit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so spheres is, is as its propulsion system, uses CO2, compressed CO2 to move around. Okay. Uh, so Astrobee is being designed uh, to use a blower-based system, which is actually okay. uh, powered by batteries, which makes it far more automated, right? It, it, can, yeah. it has its own docking station where it can recharge its batteries and not need any extra external uh, fuel to, to move around, like Spheres does. Because uh, we actually refill those CO2 tanks here at Ames and send them up every time to replenish uh, Spheres.
1: It's like the vacuum cleaner. They're like yeah, goes out and vacuums exactly. and then redocks itself. Uh,
2: it wouldn't be the first <laughs> time that uh, Astroby is compared to uh, the Roomba. The, of, Roomba. Of, the Roomba of ISS.
1: <laughs> but it's floating in ISS. It's like floats around, yep. does its job, and goes back home at exactly. the end of the day. Exactly. And, and so that's up. a
2: big goal of Astorby, is to automate these things that crew doesn't have to do. Awesome. Um, So uh, ASTORI really has three objectives. Uh, First off, to replace spheres as a research platform to do Mm -hmm. any number of different research investigations. Uh, Second, to be a mobile uh, camera platform. Uh, So ground controllers can control this thing on ISS and get different uh, views uh, and camera feeds from ISS without having to bother crew. Uh, And then as well as a mobile sensor platform. So you can put any number of different sensors on this thing. And it can do sensor sweeps all around ISS Uh, that crew doesn't have to do because that's actually something they do uh, occasionally is uh, do different kinds of sensor sweeps of ISS to measure radiation or CO2 or any number of other things. And uh, this can be automated by a free flyer like Astroby. And so we're, we're trying
1: to uh, optimize crew time because that's a very valuable thing on, on ISS. Cool. So for folks listening who want more information, uh, I imagine nasa.gov slash spheres is the best place to get the spheres information. Yeah. I mean, is there a, a similar one for Astrobee so yet or it's incoming? I'm it's guessing. incoming.
2: Um, so actually, if you do go to uh, nasa.gov slash Astrobee, there is a placeholder. There's a a landing right there. There is a landing page. It's got about a paragraph. Coming
1: soon. (laughs) Uh, Well,
2: there's about a paragraph of information there about Astrobee, but it's uh, slightly outdated. In uh, the days to come, we will be outfitting Uh, it with additional information. You actually find other resources uh, and papers that have already been published uh, through AIAA, through ICHOPUI, that do outline a lot of the details of what Astrobee is going to be capable of. Um, And it's uh, a great. A source of information uh, to learn about what's Astro B going to do, what it's capable of,
1: uh, and what it can do in the future. And so, in the short term, if folks have questions for Jose, um, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Go ahead and shoot us any kind of questions for Jose. We'll loop back to him and and get some responses for you. Absolutely. But thanks for coming over, Ron. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Happy to be here.